the Explores. Time traveling through women's history, one era at a time. I'm your host, Kate Armstrong. This week's bonus is about a lady whose name has come up a lot in our travels. She's one of those women who you might know by name, but you probably don't know anything about her personally. And I've always wondered, what drove her to do the things she's so famous for? But this episode is also about a subject near and dear to my heart, lady writers. Let's go traveling. Let's start with a story, shall we? One night, an enslaved woman named Eliza runs away. She's overheard talk that her son is to be sold, and she can't bear to be parted from him. She runs, a posse of men on her trail. One night she rents a room next to a river so that she and her son can rest for the night. She stares out the window at the water. It's spring, and it's still frozen over. With the ferry not running, she doesn't know how she's going to get across. But she will do anything to save her son from being sold away from her. Here's a passage from a book about her story, at the moment when her owner finds her in that rented room. In that dizzy moment, her feet to her scarce seemed to touch the ground, and a moment brought her to the water's edge. Right on behind they came, and, nerved with strength such as God gives only to the desperate, with one wild cry and flying leap, she vaulted sheer over the turbid current by the shore, onto the raft of ice beyond. It was a desperate leap, impossible to anything but madness and despair. The huge fragment of ice on which she alighted pitched and creaked as her weight came on it. But she stayed there not a moment. With wild cries and desperate energy, she leaped to another and still another cake, stumbling, leaping, slipping, springing upwards again. Her shoes are gone, her stockings cut from her feet, while blood marked every step. But she saw nothing, felt nothing, Till dimly, as in a dream, she saw the Ohio side, and a man helping her up the bank. It reads like a harrowing memoir, doesn't it? The true life narrative of someone who was once enslaved? But no, in fact, it's from a novel. The 19th century's best-selling and most explosive blockbuster, and the first internationally best-selling novel written by an American woman. Uncle Tom's Cabin was the 19th century's Harry Potter, or Fifty Shades of Grey. That book that everybody read, whether they loved or loathed it. Because to not read it was to miss out on a piece of cultural context. A social commentary on the times. This book also had taboo topics in it, and involved whips and chains, but not the sexy kind. Uncle Tom's Cabin was a novel bent on social justice. It was about the horrors of slavery, meant to illustrate the harrowing hurts and indignities enslaved people suffered every day and to shake white people out of their complacency about the part they played in that suffering. It was, without doubt, the most talked-about piece of writing of the era. It fanned the flames of emancipation, and maybe even helped start the Civil War. And it wasn't written by a venerable white guy. Its author was a 39-year-old working mother who desperately wanted to change the world. Harriet Elizabeth Beecher was born on June 14, 1811, in Litchfield, Connecticut. She was one of a whopping ten children born to the fabulously named Roxana and Lyman Beecher. Roxana died when Harriet was young, sadly, but Papa Lyman wasn't one to let grass grow under his feet. 
He took another wife, a beautiful young woman named, unfortunately for the sake of clarity, Harriet. She had several more children, bringing the family child total up to 13. Lyman is a fiery preacher and a big presence with intense religious feelings. Those feelings are persuasive, it seems. All seven of Harriet's brothers will go on to become ministers, which in the 19th century means becoming organizers, speakers, and sometimes social justice warriors. The most famous of these, women's rights proponent and wildly popular speaker Henry Ward Beecher, is later involved in one of the era's biggest sex scandals. You know, among other things. But let's talk about the Beecher ladies. This family is filled with real overachievers, several of them women of the pen. The oldest sister, Catherine, practically raises the rest of her siblings, helping to set them up for success. But she also goes around founding schools, raising money for welfare projects, and founding the American Women's Educational Association. Somewhere in there, she also writes quite a famous book called A Treatise on Domestic Economy. Sounds riveting, doesn't it? It's part celebration of women as domestic goddesses, part helpful how-to manual for homemakers, and part treaties on why well-educated women are the very best kind. She believes wholeheartedly in the cult of domesticity, but also that to be good wives and mothers of the future generation, girls need to go to school and learn both philosophy and how to do laundry. Or, as she put it, be initiated into the arts and mysteries of the washtub. Trying to get out red wine stains. A mystery indeed. Another sister, Isabella, is a leader in the suffrage movement and publishes essays with names like Mother's Letters to a Daughter on Women's Suffrage and books like Womanhood, Its Sanctities and Fidelities. Another page ripper. In other words, Harriet grows up in a clan committed to social justice. They hold debates around the dining room table, and everyone, boy or girl, is encouraged to join. We don't know how much exposure Harriet has to slavery as a child, but it isn't abolished in her home state until 1848, so she probably would have seen plenty of it. Some of her earliest memories are of how two African-American women hired to work for the family, both indentured servants, comforted her after her mom, Roxana, died. She and Isabella enroll in a school Catherine founded, the Hartford Female Academy, which will soon become one of the country's premier schools for girls. There she studies subjects usually reserved for gentlemen, like complex reasoning, philosophy, chemistry, classics, and math. As we already know, Catherine feels such things make one a much better wife. Which is funny, because Catherine herself never marries, and apparently doesn't keep a whole lot of house. It's interesting, this thing about one of Harriet's biggest influences. She believes that there should be separate spheres, but that woman's sphere should be elevated, placed on par in terms of respect and importance with man's. Women are responsible for turning children into good citizens, with being well-informed pillars of their communities, and they're basically running public health. But she doesn't believe in the vote for women, as that will just confuse things. Even so, she does help ensure that 19th century girls who can afford it get a rocking education. So, there's that. At school, Harriet meets some other budding authors. Sarah P. Willis, for one. She'll go on to become one of the era's most highly paid writers, using the nom de plume Fanny Fern to write about women's rights, domesticity, and the trouble with the patriarchy. Harriet turns out to be a good teacher herself. 
By age 18, with Catherine gone a-wandering, she's practically running the school and writing lots of essays in her spare time. But as we know from our travels with Clara Barton, and as I learned from being a full-time teacher and freelance writer for several years, it's far from easy. The pay is low, the hours are long, the number of students you're teaching at once is outrageous. It's just flat-out exhausting. As one doctor said about this era's teachers, They wear out faster than any other class of people. Before the Civil War, some one-quarter of women born on American soil have been a teacher at one time or another. We can thank Catherine Beecher, in part, for making public school education today a mostly female-dominated job, and for carving out a space where women could earn their own way, even if that way was hard. So there's that, too. Back to Harriet scribbling away in her off hours. At age 21, she moves with Papa Lyman to the big city, Cincinnati, Ohio, where he's heading up the Lane Theological Seminary. It is a city with a booming trade courtesy of the Ohio River, with people sailing up it from all over the country to take advantage of work opportunities there. A riot takes place between these workers in 1829, where push turns to blows as some Irish workers try to chase black workers away as unwelcome competition. Harriet tends to some of the wounded in these riots, which take place several times over the years, and in so doing gets to know some African-American workers and their stories. Those stories won't leave her in a hurry. They will grow, taking shape into something bigger, something she wants to share with the world. She also spends some time in nearby Kentucky, where slavery is still very much alive and kicking. A plantation she visits called Shelby will serve as the model for the plantation in Uncle Tom's cabin. There are pleasantries in Cincinnati, too, of course. She joins up with a scholarly group called the Semicolon Club. Man, how much do I love a semicolon? Like, a lot. A real lot. It's a literary salon where she chats with fellow members Sam and P. Chase, who will one day become one of Abraham Lincoln's closest advisors, and Emily Blackwell, one of the first American ladies to get a medical degree. I love thinking about these radical smarties sitting around discussing women's rights and their views on punctuation. Throw in a Negroni and that's my kind of party. It's while whispering over grammar that Harriet falls in love with a widower named Calvin Ellis Stowe. A theology professor, she describes him as, bless, rich in Greek and Hebrew, Latin and Arabic, and, alas, rich in nothing else. They get hitched on January 6, 1836, start having babies, and eventually move to a cottage in Brunswick, Maine. If Harriet had someone else's views and personality, our knowledge of her story would probably end here. But Calvin feels as passionately about ending slavery as she does, and he believes in his wife, who knows that she is meant to write something important concerning it. But where to find the time? Harriet is busy having and raising seven babies, which doesn't leave a whole lot of room for writing masterpieces. Particularly when, as we know, 19th century men do not see it as their duty to help out much at home. You think women struggle to have a thriving career and raise a family now? We have it easy by comparison. Say you want to make a birthday cake. In this era, it's not like you can run out and buy one. You have no baking powder and a brick of sugar to work with, which means you have to hand beat the batter with a fork for 45 minutes. Woof, who's ready for a nap? 
It doesn't help that high society isn't clamoring to make working mother a thing. That said, Harriet's husband's paltry income means she has to write as much as she can to help make ends meet. That's the extremely valid excuse that many female writers use for having the gall to make money from their art. It's to feed their families, so that makes it socially okay, right? She manages to write and publish her first novel, Mayflower, in 1843, despite all the diaper changing and prolonged beating of cakes. All the while, her great idea is brewing away in the back of her mind. She continues to interact with the formerly enslaved. Her husband and brother help out at least one man escaping slavery on the Underground Railroad. She is horrified by the stories she hears, particularly about separated families. But one story influences her perhaps more than all the rest. In 1849, she reads a memoir by Josiah Henson, a formerly enslaved man who just published the story of his life. Josiah's earliest memory was of his father's ear being cut off, then being sold south, all because he fought back against a white man who tried to sexually assault his wife. Mega yikes. Things didn't exactly improve from there. He and his mother were treated badly and whipped often, especially when Josiah made the mistake of trying to teach himself to read. Years later, when he'd risen up the ranks to become his master's chief seller of produce at the markets in Washington, he started preaching around the city. Since he couldn't read, he memorized verses by listening to them, making them his own. A white man he was friendly with convinced him to raise money to buy his own freedom, but his master stole it and tried to sell him south. Eventually, he escaped with his wife and two of his children. They walked 600 miles all the way to Canada. That's 11 and a half marathons. He went on to start a sawmill, which cut such good lumber it won a prize at London's World's Fair and became an active stationmaster in the Underground Railroad. Kind of in love with Josiah, to be honest. But Harriet doesn't just read his memoir. She asks to meet him in person. We went to Mrs. Stowe's house, and she was deeply interested in the story of my life and misfortunes, he said, and had me narrate its details to her. She said she was glad it had been published and hoped it would be of great service and would open the eyes of the people to the enormity of the crime of holding men in bondage. That same year Josiah publishes his memoir, something else profound happens to Harriet. The death of her 18-month-old son, Samuel. This devastating loss opens a window in this relatively privileged woman's life into what it must be like to be a woman in bondage. It was at his dying bed, she said later, that I learned what a poor slave mother may feel when her child is torn away from her. And then along comes the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. As we talked about in episodes 9 and 10, this law is deeply distressing and damaging but it gives those feeling queasy about slavery a big push to stand up and shout about it. Harriet and her siblings certainly feel like shouting. They can't believe the government would try to force them to participate in something as evil as slavery. It did my heart good to find somebody in as indignant a state as I am about this miserable fugitive slave business, Harriet wrote to Catherine. Why, I have felt almost choked sometimes with pent-up wrath that does no good. Her sister Isabella thinks it's about time Harriet writes something about the peculiar institution. Now, Hattie, if I could use a pen as you can, I would write something that would make this whole nation feel what an accursed thing slavery is. 
But how to get it written with many children to tend? As long as the baby sleeps with me nights, I can't do much at anything, she wrote. But I will do it at last. Lucky she has some fabulous female family members to lean on. Isabella is the one that copies out the manuscript. Catherine actually moves in with Harriet during the writing process, tending the children so Harriet can meet her daily word count. I am trying to get Uncle Tom out of the way, Catherine wrote. At eight o'clock, we are through with breakfast and prayers, and then we send off Mr. Stowe and Harriet both to his room at the college. There was no other way to keep her out of family cares and quietly at work, and since this plan is adopted, she goes along finely. It's still hard, but Harriet feels she has to write it. I feel now that the time has come when even a woman or a child who can speak a word for freedom and humanity is bound to speak. She wrote to the editor of a journal called The National Era, which will eventually be the one to publish it. I hope every woman who can write will not be silent. In 1851, Uncle Tom's Cabin runs for the first time in The National Era, a Washington anti-slavery paper. With the subtitle "The Man That Was a Thing," which is soon changed to "Life Among the Lowly," readers wait breathlessly for each week's installment. There are forty-one of them in all. To say that people are gripped is an understatement. The paper's readership leaps up by twenty-six percent. You can imagine how quickly book publishers start coming calling. Before we talk about the novel's contents, let's explore the publishing industry so we can appreciate Harriet's triumph. With technology making printing easier and cheaper, the industry is changing fast. Steam-powered cylinder presses make it possible for thousands of newspapers to get churned out every hour. The railroad, steamboats, and the telegraph mean that news can travel faster and farther than ever. So while most women live in rural towns, not cities, they have access to more newspapers, mail-order periodicals, and novels than ever before. By 1861, the country has about 3,700 newspapers in circulation. That's twice the number published in Britain, and accounts for one third of the world's total supply. Magazines have become way more popular, particularly with the ladies. Godey's Ladies' Book, filled with fashion plates and practical guides to domestic goddesshood, is the good housekeeping of the century. Or perhaps the Cosmo of the century, minus articles with titles like "Ten New Ways to Rev His Engine Tonight." Before the Civil War, Harper's Magazine estimated that some four fifths of its readership are women, and that's a big deal. As we talked about in episode one, women of this age are clamoring for advice columns and how-to books about domesticity, and there sure are a lot of them. Victorian women are taught things like reading, writing, and math to equip them to be at-home teachers for their children. But it has another consequence too: it makes them America's first mass book-buying audience, particularly when it comes to novels. I mean, men are too busy making money to indulge in such things. If it's not related to stocks, why bother? Women suddenly have a way of exercising an unprecedented consumer power. And that opens up opportunities for lady writers and editors too. Sarah Hale, when she finds herself a single mother of five at the tender age of forty, makes money by staying up late and writing things—poems mostly, you know, like that one about Mary's little lamb. Maybe you've heard of it. 
She becomes the first woman editress of a magazine written specifically for women. Later, she becomes the editor of Godey's Ladies Book, which by 1860 has some 160,000 subscribers. She's also responsible for pushing Abe Lincoln to make Thanksgiving an annual holiday. Thanks, Sarah. We owe you one. But life isn't easy for women writers, who often work under a pen name so they don't have to face cries of their being unwomanly. Authoress Julia Ward Howe publishes a novel called Passion Flowers, anonymously, in 1853, and then her husband threatens to divorce her and take the kids. He won't even speak to her for three months after publication. He is far from the only man to feel betrayed and outraged when his lady relation takes up her pen to express herself. But he sure is one of the most stab-worthy. Despite the fact that women aren't really encouraged to become authors, there are a lot of them. Social reformers, abolitionists, spiritualists, even journalists. And gals just wanting to write a captivating tale. Nathaniel Hawthorne famously complained that this damned mob of scribbling women were ruining literature. This outburst may have been because he heard that one lady novelist book sold more copies in a month than his book The Scarlet Letter sold, well, ever. But come on, Nathaniel. I was forced to read that book in high school, and it was worse than pulling teeth with tiny pliers. While we're at it, let's talk about a few other awesome authoresses. A few years before Uncle Tom's Cabin, a gal named Susan Warner writes a book called The Wide, Wide World, which becomes one of the nation's very first true bestsellers. It goes through 14 editions in just two years and becomes the first novel to reach the one million books sold mark. Get it, Susan? In 1862, our friend Julia Ward Howe decides that one of Harriet Tubman's favorite war songs, John Brown's Body, could use a more positive bent. So she writes the Battle Hymn of the Republic to the same tune, which quickly becomes the Union's Civil War anthem. Another jealous Nathaniel, an editor over at Home Journal, looks down on what he calls the universality of cheap and trashy novels, mostly written by ladies, and how sentimental many of them are. And yes, even some lady novelists have to admit there are a lot of very emotionally over-the-top novels out there. To get why this might be, it helps to understand what American readers are particularly obsessed with right now. On one hand, you have Charles Dickens, with his sad orphans and their tales of woe. On the other, you have Charlotte Bronte and Jane Eyre, haunting and passionate, which is particularly loved by American ladies because of how its plucky heroine brings a man to his repentant knees. But a lot of the novels of the time don't necessarily follow this model because it doesn't fit with the Victorian ideal. Yes, you have a lot of authoresses writing about sweet orphan girls going through many adventures. But like Sarah Emma Edmonds' favorite novel, Fanny Campbell, The Female Pirate Captain, they can only go on these usually boys-only escapades under extreme duress to rescue a man or because they have no money or because their wicked male relations abandoned them. She must stay chaste and upstanding throughout, of course, and our sweet young heroine just has to get married and settle down in the end. But Harriet's novel is something different altogether. It's not meant to be entertainment, really. And it's written for white women, primarily. But it's not about white women at all. The story unfolds at the Shelby Plantation in Kentucky, where two men, Tom and young Harry, are sold away to settle some family debts. 
The master's wife has promised Eliza, her servants and Harry's mother, that he wouldn't be sold. But now he is, and the story splits down two different paths. On one, Eliza and Harry run away from the plantation, hopping over ice floes with Harry in her arms as her pursuers try to grab her. Eventually, her family is reunited in Canada. But Tom decides to stay to protect his family and ends up being sold deep down south. There, he meets a varied cast of characters. Eva, a young, kind white girl, and her passive father. Topsy, a young black girl who acts out to try and mask her sadness. And the harsh and cruel white master, Simon Legree. He holds onto his faith throughout his struggles, but it isn't enough to save him. Eventually, Legree beats him to death for refusing to give up the place where two runaway women are hiding, his cabin. The genius of Harriet's book is that she seems to know who her audience is, mostly women. And to get women to care, she plays on their emotions, putting the spotlight squarely on how slavery treats mothers and their children, the way it rips families apart. That scene where Eliza runs, desperate, across the river with her son, is as iconic as the one where Harry faces Voldemort, even more so. Because this isn't fantasy, it's real. The book peels back the veil between North and South, showing Northerners just how terrible things are for the enslaved. It makes them realize, too, that just because they don't own slaves doesn't mean they aren't responsible for what's happening. It's also meant to shake Southerners out of their complacency, to hold up a mirror and make them look at, and feel, the effects of the system they continue to perpetuate. It shocks many people into wokeness, and that makes it, as poet Langston Hughes put it, America's first protest novel. It's published in book form on March 20th, 1852, and from day one, it's a smash hit. The book sells 3,000 copies in its first day on shelves. By the end of its first year in print, that number has reached more than 300,000. And that's just in America. It sells a staggering 1.5 million copies worldwide in that first year, becoming one of the first international bestsellers to come out of America. By the end of the century, only the Bible will beat it out in terms of sales. Harriet's muse Josiah Henson said of it, When this novel of Mrs. Stowe came out, it shook the foundations of this world. It shook the Americans out of their shoes and of their shirts. It shakes a lot of people. And in a world with slavery still at its center, it also strikes a lot of nerves. Anti-slavery pundits eat it up, and quickly. So does the fledgling Republican Party, because years later, during the 1860 presidential campaign that Abe Lincoln will win, they hand out 100,000 copies to try and get abolitionists on side. And it seems to help. As radical Republican leader and Senator Charles Sumner said, Had there been no Uncle Tom's cabin, there would have been no Lincoln in the White House. Of course, not all Northerners love it. I mean, it was written by a woman, after all. A New York Times review said of it years later, To use novels as weapons of attack or defense is like giving foul blows in boxing. You may disable your antagonist, but you degrade yourself and doubly degrade the supporters who applaud you. Southern critics proclaim that it's just propaganda. Her portrait of slave owners is unrealistic and unjust. They certainly don't know any slave owners who behave like that. 
It left some of them on the sandbar, barefooted and scratching their heads, Josiah Henson said. So they came to the conclusion that the whole thing was a fabrication. Some even write response pieces meant to tell the real story about slavery, and they sell well, but not as well as Harriet. That's not to say Southerners don't read it. Boy, do they. Our favorite Southern diarist, Mary Chestnut, writes about it several times in her diary, though as is her usual style, she uses it as a means of musing on her own life and the lives of Southern plantation wives like her. I hate slavery. You say there are no more fallen women on a plantation than in London, in proportion to numbers. But what do you say to this? A magnate who runs a hideous black harem with its consequences under the same roof with his lovely wife and his beautiful, accomplished daughters? He holds his head high and poses as the model of all human virtues to these poor women whom God and the laws have given him. You see, Mrs. Stowe did not hit the sorest spot. She makes Legree a bachelor. And of course, critics say the thing people are still saying about works by female authors. Ugh, the writing is just too emotional to be serious or worthwhile. Did she curl up in a ball and cry about it? Nope, she snapped back. I wrote what I did because as a woman, as a mother, I was oppressed and brokenhearted with the sorrows and injustice I saw. Because as a Christian, I felt the dishonor to Christianity. Because as a lover of my country, I trembled at the coming day of wrath. It is no merit in the sorrowful that they weep, or to the oppressed and smothering that they gasp and struggle, not to me, that I must speak for the oppressed, who cannot speak for themselves. She writes another book in 1853 called The Key to Uncle Tom's Cabin, presenting the original facts and documents upon which the story is founded, together with corroborative statements verifying the truth of the work. It points out all the ways in which her little emotional novel is indeed very realistic. You best believe that bibliography was very, very long. The character of Uncle Tom has been objected to as improbable, and yet the writer has received more confirmations of that character, and from a great variety of sources, than of any other in the book. Many of those confirmations came straight from Josiah Henson. And do you know who checks out that book from the Library of Congress? President Abraham Lincoln. He borrows it for 43 days in 1862, at the same time he's writing the Emancipation Proclamation. We don't know how much it may have influenced him, but that's some pretty timely reading. Some even say that, when she went to the White House and met the great man, he said, So you are the little woman who wrote the book that started this great war. The book itself didn't light the match, for sure, but it certainly fanned the flames, and thus helped change history. And love it or hate it, it has a major impact. Putnam's Magazine wrote, Mrs. Stowe, who was before unknown, is as familiar a name in all parts of the civilized world as that of Homer or Shakespeare. In the Boston Music Hall, where abolitionists gather to celebrate the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863, they all chant, What, you ask? Abraham Lincoln? Nope. Harriet Beecher Stowe. Harriet Beecher Stowe. Harriet didn't write the book to make money, she said. She just hoped to make enough to buy a new dress. But by the end of that first year, she could have bought all the dresses. Sad to say, Josiah Henson never made any money from it. Years later, the book is turned into theatrical shows which are very popular, 
but to put it mildly, they are in very poor taste. They feature white actors in blackface portraying twisted caricatures of the book's subjects. Uncle Tom, poor, with terrible grammar, and all too eager to sell out his brethren to win over his master, is what most people ended up remembering. It must be said that, despite her best intentions, Harriet's book shows the potential pitfalls of writing someone else's story. She uses dialect freely in the book, sometimes in cringeworthy ways, painting her subjects in a stereotypical and sometimes even offensive light. And while she felt strongly that slavery was wrong, she didn't necessarily believe that equality was the answer either. She thought, like many people, that the enslaved should be shipped back to Africa, that they could never find true freedom in America amongst people who were intellectually superior to them. And therein lies her complicated multitudes. Though she is responsible for profound social change, she also doesn't believe that black people are, by nature, her equal. But still, it's worth remembering that this was a very racy book for her to publish. Dangerous, even. She takes a huge risk because she feels it's her responsibility to fight. And I give her mad props for that. And though Josiah Henson never makes a dime from Harriet's accomplishment, he gives her mad props as well. From that time to the present, I have been called Uncle Tom, he said. And I feel proud of the title. If my humble words in any way inspired that gifted lady to write, I have not lived in vain, for I believe that her book was the beginning of the glorious end. Harriet goes on a huge lecture tour to meet her fans. Remember, this is a time when women up on stage speaking on serious topics is scandalous in the extreme. So Harriet allows her male relations to speak for her, voluntarily stowing herself away backstage. I have been forced into it, she told a fan, contrary to my natural modesty. After the war, Harriet becomes one of the first editors of a women's mag called Hearth and Home, and she campaigns for the expansion of married women's rights. As she grows older, she isn't afraid to make bold statements. Like in 1869, when she says, rather racily, The position of a married woman is, in many respects, precisely similar to that of the Negro slave. She can make no contract and hold no property. Whatever she inherits or earns becomes, at that moment, the property of her husband. Though he acquired a fortune through her, or though she earned a fortune through her talents, he is the sole master of it, and she cannot draw a penny. She has a lot of fascinating things to say about womanhood, things that feel fresh to us even today. Like this gem about body image. We in America have got so far out of the way of a womanhood that has any vigor of outline or opulence of physical proportion that, when we see a woman made as a woman ought to be, she strikes us as a monster. Our willowy girls are afraid of nothing so much as growing stout. She and her husband use some of the book money to buy an orange grove in Florida, as you do. She loves the weather down there, though even thinking about Florida makes me sweat immediately. And the family spends winters there until Calvin's health is too bad to allow it. Otherwise, she lives in Hartford, Connecticut, and continues to write, ultimately producing 30 books and novels. She goes on lecture tours, advocates for education initiatives, and generally continues to make the world a better place. American teens in our century all learn about Uncle Tom's Cabin, but we never actually read it. 
It hasn't become a great Gatsby or a Wuthering Heights. But Harriet Beecher Stowe's work was something more than a classic. It was revolutionary in the way it shaped the public consciousness for decades. And that will always make it a kind of masterpiece. Thanks for listening to The Exploress. If you liked it, please go subscribe and rate it on Apple Podcasts. It'll help other people discover it. For loads of great visuals to go along with this episode, follow me on Instagram at The Exploress Podcast. For show notes, including a list of my sources, suggested reading, and more, check out my website, www.theexploresspodcast.com. Come find me on Twitter at The Exploress Pod and Facebook at The Exploress Podcast. I'd love to hear from you. When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. At Stangy Law Firm, we represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri.